an official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 319th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a trailblazer who is one of the American film industry's most respected producers and film festival chiefs. She is the co-founder, CEO, and executive chair of Tribeca Enterprises, a media company that encompasses Tribeca Productions, the Tribeca Film Festival, Tribeca Studios, and the Tribeca Film Institute. Her partner in all of this is one Robert De Niro, with whom she has run a production company since 1988 and with whom she has run the Tribeca Film Festival since 2002. Her credits include the TV movie The Wizard of Lies, for which she was Emmy-nominated in 2017, the TV limited series When They See Us, for which she was Emmy-nominated in 2019, won the Best Limited Series Critics' Choice Award in 2020, and is nominated for the PGA Award in that category this month, and a host of major films, including the Analyze This and Meet the Parents film franchises, and A Brock's Tale, About a Boy, Wag the Dog, and most recently, The Irishman, for which she was nominated for the Best Picture Critics' Choice Award and is nominated for both the top PGA Award and the Best Picture Oscar. She is not only one of the top producers, but also one of the most powerful women in entertainment, as has been noted on The Hollywood Reporter's Power 100 list, and with the New York Women in Film and Television Career Impact Achievement Award, Jane Rosenthal. Reuters has said, quote, Movie producers do not turn into household names as often as actors and directors, but Jane Rosenthal leapt to that level, close quote. Over the course of our conversation at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, Rosenthal and I discussed how that happened. Looking back at what led her to move to Hollywood after college and later to walk away from being a studio executive to partner with De Niro, how she and De Niro worked together, and how they have navigated successes and failures, what it was about 9-11 that inspired them to start the Tribeca Film Festival in partnership with Rosenthal's then-husband, Craig Hatkoff, why the Irishman took so long to get made, but has made them so proud, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you on the podcast. Always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, my goodness. Where was, <laughs> I was born in Aurora, rural Colorado. My father was actually in the Army, um, and I was uh, an Army baby for a, a whole 10 days. <laughs> I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and moved to New York when I went to NYU. Well, let's go back a second, though, because as a kid— the dream was not to be a producer, but it was to be in 
and in sort of the performing arts, right? What was what was the original hope? At one point, I wanted to be an actress, <laughs> but I didn't think I was really good, <laughs> or you know, I didn't think I was really good. But I felt like I I wanted to make a difference in the world, and I ended up being a page when I was uh, it was. 15, 16, in the Rhode Island House of Representatives, and really f- felt that if I went into politics, I could really make a difference. In the I think world. you were the first woman page, female page? Uh, yes. Yes? yes. Okay. yes. There were a few uh, of those along yeah. the way, yeah. first female. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then I realized, okay, that the pages were actually making more money than the representatives were, and I didn't think that. I didn't think that was right. It was also a period of time during in the Rhode Island House. You had some interesting kind of deals, shady stuff mm-hmm. like going on. But you know, you had really good Italian food. Uh, the speaker <laughs> at the time, when it was his Saint's Day, would stop the business of the house and all of his relatives would bring in all these Italian delicacies. <laughs> so that was fun to witness. Uh, this but, wasn't like Buddy Sancy days, was it? Um, this was like right around the time, but Buddy was mayor. This was the house. Okay, okay. Uh, so I just really believed that if you could, whether it was telling stories of telling documentary stories, which I had wanted to do, or film, you could you could have more impact to a certain extent than than the politicians at the time. So I believe it's 1975 that you moved to New York for the first time. What was the reason for that? I was going to NYU. I was going to NYU, and I was going to be studying film in the film department. It wasn't a school at the time, (laughs) really dating myself. But I was very excited because Martin Scorsese had uh, been at NYU, and um, I would get to see his sight and sound films, and Hegman Nugian was running the department, and he was an extraordinary teacher, and he was also a great mentor to Marty. So... For you, at that time when you show up in New York, what would the ideal career have been going forward? I don't think it was an ideal. It was just a matter of coming from... Look, you have to understand, Providence, Rhode Island was such an armpit at the time that <laughs> I grew up there. So when going being in New York and just seeing traffic, <laughs> I would be like, oh my God, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? And you realize it's just there are more than three cars <laughs> at a red light. Right. So everything to me was exhilarating. I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do I wanted to do theater. I wanted to study acting classes. I wanted to do I wanted to do journalism. I wanted to do I just couldn't get enough of it. And didn't sleep very much. I mean, it was just uh, going all the time. It was it was exhilarating. I felt like I had um, been asleep living, you know, growing up in Providence for all these years. And finally, it was like, okay, New York. Well, I think you had a, a few side hustles even while you were still a student, and actually, uh, a couple of those sort of fatefully combined to sort of lead you out to LA. Can you share, because this, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, they're wondering if, you know, just what's the path to getting into this business? Sometimes it's, I don't think it's replicatable. And this seems to be an example of just being in the right place, doing your 
job to the to the fullest, even when it was a sort of lowly position or positions. Anyway, take it away. Well, my parents wouldn't put me through school if I majored in acting, and so I thought I'd major in film, which I did. And then it always seemed to be a lot of a lot of I think what drove me was the fact that my father said no a lot, <laughs> um, and I wasn't really I really needed to get a part time a part time job so because it would pay for as much as it costs to live in the dorm, mm-hmm. and which still is there, the Weinstein dorm on University Place. Um, I don't know many kids that really like being in that dorm now. <laughs> anyway, so I ended up working uh, for CBS Sports as a researcher. It was also when CBS Sports was not a division, but was just a department, and it was before anybody could Google anything, <laughs> and uh, they had no research, and the first thing I was assigned to was the Pan Am Games, and ended up through the good graces of uh, a writer by the name of Dan Jenkins uh, and uh, Pete Axelrod. They let me into the Sports Illustrated and Newsweek morgues so I could (laughs) Xerox all the research. Um, Were you even a sports buff? uh, No. (laughs) No, I wasn't a sports buff. But what was the human stories, the stories of what made somebody why they were and why they were an athlete what they had to endure what they put themselves through those stories always interested me what was also great about working for CBS was not only did i get a part-time job and got to be paid but i also could use that as an independent study for my work oh, at NY, my NYU through the Gallatin school so whatever i was doing on the side i was also making sure i got school credit for it you know and then there's also something with the best little whorehouse in texas so i wanted to study. Lee Strasberg was still teaching at the Actors Studio occasionally. And there were these guys. Uh, one was Chris Walken. There was this other guy, Harvey Keitel. And there was this uh, guy, Al Pacino. And um, sometimes this guy, Robert De Niro, would show up. <laughs> and you, you know, in order to observe sessions at the studio, you had to you had to work. So I ended up getting involved. I was asked to read. Uh, I was asked to read a play that was uh, called "The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas," and I ended up quote producing it, which meant I was really good at at props and getting people's schedules First organized. First producing credit. Uh, yes, <laughs> and uh, that play ended up moving from the studio to off Broadway at the time. Stevie Phillips was an amazing uh, theater producer and film producer who uh, was working at Universal, had optioned the rights through her good friend Bill Goldman, who was also friends with Pete Masterson, which is how all of that came together. I wasn't involved. I was just really, you know, just carrying whatever they <laughs> whatever they asked me to, whatever they asked me to carry. So that was uh, I was all of about. 19 when that was going on so to be to witness that and to just soak everything up was was pretty amazing so if i have my information correct it seems like the way the dots connect is that cbs people come in from la they want to go to the best little whorehouse in texas you 
have your moment to shine for them, right? Is that sort of correct? God, you've done your homework, <laughs> sir. I'm very impressed. Um, yes, that's what that's actually what happened. Nobody could get tickets, and I, of course, had the house seat number, and it had the play did not get good reviews in New York papers, um, but it did get great reviews at a time where people were reading. Time Magazine and Newsweek. So the national reviews were really, really good. And people read it, you know, on their on the plane coming in to for programming, scheduling meetings, and everybody wanted tickets. And suddenly I was like, well, I can get you a ticket. <laughs> um, so they're like, how can you get us a ticket, right. kid? And I was like, okay, well, and would explain this story. Right. And so how does it come about that Somebody says, come on out to L.A. Well, there was, uh, I was about to finish school, and, you know, it was uh, a time in the business where you were doing more, first of all, you only had four networks, and whenever there was programming failure, they would put on a television movie or a miniseries. It was uh, in that Mm -hmm. post roots, Mm -hmm. rich man, poor man. I mean, I'm really going back into deep uh, (laughs) television history here. And, um, you know, they were also very mindful of what they were paying people and wanted uh, some fresh new ideas. So having done Whorehouse and everything else, a gentleman by the name of Michael Severide offered me a job to do miniseries and television movies at CBS. And then it was a very difficult position of negotiating (laughs) what I was now going to make working for CBS at the age of 21. (laughs) And in fact, that was uh, relevant to your negotiations. It was. It was very relevant <laughs> because they offered me like, I remember like $18,000 or something. And I just remember saying, well, I have to at least make my age. <laughs> so, um, so, and they, they moved me complete with my box spring mattress and an orange <laughs> cart and a few books. What did, had you ever spent time in LA before moving there? No. So you show up and it's totally new. Completely new. And what did you make of it? Well, the first thing that was really kind of disturbing is you couldn't hail a taxi. (laughs) You had to drive. You had to drive everywhere. And not that I didn't drive growing up in Providence, but what I always loved about New York is that you could just go out anywhere. It was that freedom. It's that freedom that, you know, my kids now experience because the uberfication of, uh, (laughs) you know, of of the world. But it was, you know, it was just to be able to go out and yell, taxi, (laughs) always thinking I was Marlo Thomas or Mary Tyler Moore (laughs) when I'd like race out in the street. And you couldn't do that in L.A., but I got used to it. And so you were working at? Television City? No, I was working at Radford. Okay. Studio City. And? They just closed Dupar's, too. That was my favorite place to eat. (laughs) Tuna melts. Did you ever have a Dupar's tuna melt? I mean, I, I, you know, for (laughs) your audience, I bet you'll get a lot of response. uh, But it was a nippy nip tuna. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so in between tuna sandwiches there, you did. I believe, 70-something TV movies. And this is over a period of maybe like 
nine years? No, it was a period of five, five years, years in acute programming failure. So when CBS would go from either being number two or number three. And uh, at one point, there were five, uh, four nights of movies on the air. And so your responsibility was choosing material or or develop or producing these programs? What was your... was, so uh, uh, first of all, I had more no power. You know, it was not that I had yes power. Yeah. I, had no, I yeah. had no power. But it was about advocating for whatever project that was coming, coming in to develop it, working with, working with the writers, making sure writers' deals got, got done, advocating for it to go into production and overseeing the production. So I got to do everything from working with uh, John Hausman and Henry Fonda wow. on a movie about uh, Clarence Earl Thomas called Gideon's Trumpet. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they showed us that in a in a law class. <laughs> there you go. You know, so yeah. it was okay. You're making a difference now. And it was a Hallmark Hall of Fame. I remember John Hausman coming in to meet me and like looking at me and saying, "Oh, I've just met this kindergarten person." <laughs> and it was and Faye Ray, David Rintels, oh who wrote it. Faye Ray was is uh, David's. Um, mother-in-law and he put fame so it was like hollywood history right. it was like it was absolutely amazing i was also working for a man named william self who had uh produced a lot of uh bogey and bacall movies it was just like i you know couldn't believe where i was well yeah i mean within five years before you were you know in school doing all this stuff on the side and now you've got real responsibility yeah. it's amazing. yeah e eating eating yogurt on the train <laughs> Well, so why did you leave CBS? I know you went to a, another good job, but how does that happen? Well, I had covered every major social issue and disease of the week <laughs> and hadn't found a cure for cancer. And, you know, I did movies at the time about the gift of life, about female, Sarah, you know, about surrogate mother, which was considered like sci-fi. Susan Day was in it. It was really radical. And I fought to get the movie The Burning Bed made in, evidently, in CBS didn't want to make it. Then Brandon Tartikoff ended up making it at NBC, but I had developed that. I got a little, I was a little frustrated. I was having to do a lot, of, you know, a lot of stuff, which was extraordinary. It was amazing, amazing experience. But I wanted to focus. I wanted to be able to work on just a few projects at the same time. And, uh, was offered a job to go work with Frank Price at the time and go over to Universal Universal Pictures. And the job there was to to do similar stuff. Similar stuff, but on on features on and features. Um, but it wasn't quite the way I thought it was going to be because I Sidney Pollack was making Out of Africa. We got to see outtakes mm -hmm. of it, which was exciting. Got to see some outtakes of the movie Brazil. And um, they had me working on Jaws. I don't remember the number. <laughs> I don't Three, know. Probably. <laughs> it was, it, they, they wanted me to do, because I had come out of television, they were really looking for me to do work on projects that would, that had a sequel potential, yeah. and that really wasn't my forte. So uh, 
I ended up moving to work with Katzenberg and Eisner when they had first moved from Paramount to Disney. Yes. And um, there I was doing both television movies, which were the Disney Sunday movies, mm-hmm. as well as as well as features. And it was there that I worked on the movie The Color of Money and got to know Scorsese, yes. who said to me, what are you doing as a studio executive? Why don't you, um, you should meet my friend Bob, who's thinking <laughs> of starting a company. A production company of his own. Now, just quick aside, this may be wrong, but was there ever at some point something with Warner Brothers Television? That was after, that was a brief period after Disney and before I moved to New York. To New York. So the, the, there was that gap because basically De Niro had been looking for a while for a partner. You were not, also, you also were not sure you were interested in uprooting your life and going back to the East Coast to go and work for an actor who who the hell knew what you would be signing up for, right? Correct. So what tipped the scale when apparently a lot of people in your life were advising you against doing that? Well, um, at the end of the day, I did this list of pros, cons, and intangibles. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the pros outweighed the cons, especially if I was going to trust my own instinct. Mm -hmm. And the intangibles were basically going to be intangibles for the rest of my life. And at the time, I was 29. And it was like, if I can't take a, if I can't believe in myself, if I can't believe in my own instincts, then what can I believe in? And I mean, I'm not curing cancer. I'm not in I'm in an industry that is about your instinct and about, and to a certain extent, it's like a startup. Every time you start a new movie, you're always it's, you're always starting from, from zero. So, I thought, why not give it a try? The worst that was going to happen is I would come back to LA and be a studio executive. Right. It also didn't help that, um, or perhaps it did help that, I would have Bob calling me and saying things like. What is it? Do you want to be a studio executive for the rest <laughs> of your life? This is during the, the uh, courtship. Right. right. Yeah. Do you want to be a studio executive for the rest of your life? And it just like still rings in my ears. <laughs> I can hear him. I can hear him say that. And um, Well, so here we are almost 35 years. No, it's late. only 31. Well, Let's not go 35. 31 since you started the right. production yes, company. Yes, but yes. Yeah, since like, Color of Money went Scorsese. Oh, God, yes. So the reason yeah. I say this is you've had a long time to talk to both Scorsese and De Niro about, for Scorsese, what did he see in you that made him think you would work well with De Niro? And De Niro, why did he ultimately want to work with you over all these other people he'd been meeting with? Do you know what the answers to those questions are? No. I mean, we joke about it a lot. And I think maybe Marty just didn't, you know, wanted to give Bob, oh, here's somebody, try this person. <laughs> you know, I, I you know. Because, I mean, that you again, you were... Obviously, you'd packed a lot into 29 years, but you were a 29-year-old signing up to go work with already a legendary actor. It must have been kind of mind-blowing. Well, yes, but it was nerve-wracking, too. We didn't have the name of a company. We were going to work in his kitchen. We didn't have an (laughs) office. I didn't have an apartment. I mean, we didn't—he wanted to— you know, do the. I, I would tell people I'm moving to New. I'm moving to New York. I'm in Tribeca. They said I thought you moved to New York. 
I did move to New York. It's above, you know, it's on the west side. It's below the village. It's above the World Trade Center. You mean near New Jersey? I mean, there'd be this whole riff that would go on. And, you know, it just got tired. Okay, I put my head down and just uh, just try to build try to build this. Well, um, let's, let's talk about why you ended up in Tribeca because I know that I think pretty early on in the production company partnership, you – guys were you had a, a overhead deal with TriStar and they're saying we've got office space for you but it's uptown why would you guys choose to be way downtown well that's bob why would he <laughs> want to do anything why would he want to do anything normal and what was in you know he lived downtown and why would you know if we're going to his goal with this with that original overhead deal was yes i want to I want to make movies. I want to find something to that he could direct was a priority. Priority, yeah. but could we do something? Could we capitalize on it? Could we do something and bring artists in New York together? Could we create kind of an open space community for artists? You see this now, and yeah. it's like, oh yeah, that's like this you is know, we work before we work. <laughs> without question, we were going to have shared office services, a common area. We blew out, uh, we blew out a ceiling so we could have double height ceilings. This and is the open Film Center. This is the Tribeca Film Center, and the real estate people were furious, but we thought, okay, we have this great space with this amazing light. We're going to get uptown prices downtown if you could find Tribeca. And then <laughs> Bob wanted to start a restaurant uh, with his partner Drew Nipperant, and so really, at the at the end of the day, he just wanted to bring the industry closer to his home, right? Yeah, within <laughs> a little walking radius, right. you know. <laughs> so. Okay, I I've been fortunate with both with you and uh, separately on this podcast and other things to spend a little bit of time with Bob. And my sense is that he is a very reserved man of few words for to most people. I think you probably see a different Bob than the rest of us, and so I wonder what what is he like when we're not around. Well, I've been. I don't, it's like everybody else, you know. We talk about we talk about all kinds of things. It's like you know. I've also been with Bob for so long. I don't, you know. There's a part of me that doesn't know anything else yeah. either. I mean, but I mean, is is what do you make of that? That he's obviously he can be anybody on screen, but you know, in in out in the world, it it sometimes feels like he uh, he really closes up. No, he's a passionate family man. Yeah. He's, you know, picks his, you know, daughter up from school. He is, uh, you know, likes Sunday meals mm-hmm. and watching movies. And he does, you know, just about what everybody else does. Rides has- his bike in really? New York. Yeah. <laughs> well, so how does it work for you guys at the production company and the what we'll get to later with the film festival and all that in terms of, you know, he's got a, uh, he's always had a pretty active career as an actor as well. So are you basically the, you know, person who's there every day overseeing what needs to be overseen and then he'll kind of, you'll speak by phone or how does it actually work in terms of co-running a, a operation with him? Well, he will, 
if it's if it's something that Bob is going to act in, if it's a project that Bob is going to act in, on the couple occasions that he directed, both Bronx Tale and uh, The Good Shepherd, mm-hmm. and maybe there's another one in there. Um, you know, it's a different it's a different working relationship than when we're just uh, developing projects. But you're getting you're getting to a point that you want to develop what becomes what we're all passionate about. Um, and as a production company, you know, it's not like uh, you don't have to do a lot of a lot of volume, but you can do what you're passionate about. And what if you know we gave you truth serum and you were to set aside all humility, what do you do best as a producer? I really think I am absolutely dogged about putting projects together and uh, steadfast and determined to get something made that I'm I'm passionate about and um, whether that takes... Um, months or inevitably years mm-hmm. and years <laughs> and years to do, I'll get it done. I think no is not an option mm-hmm. uh, for me with a lot of it. And you've said, quote, for years and years, I was the only woman in the room, close quote. Things maybe are getting a little better. I'll leave that to you to say. But I just wonder from that standpoint of things, how what's your experience been? There have been some wonderful days, and there have been some days I wish I had a, a stronger left hook. Um, <laughs> but I also learned what a good back alley was. Um, but uh, it is it is now, you see, there's clearly more women in the room. And when you look at what, certainly I've been working with Netflix for mm-hmm. uh, the past couple of years, and Cindy Holland and Nina Tassler, and just that whole group has been extraordinary to work with. Uh, so you're definitely seeing more women. You're certainly, you know, we're starting to see more women directors. 2019 numbers were better than 2018 numbers, but change doesn't just happen because we want it to or because suddenly we have a movement. The fact that we're all woke to this <laughs> is is an advantage. Um, I think it's also an advantage that we now have more than four places in the yeah. television universe or even in, you know, the feature film universe, as, as both of these worlds are, are merging together anyway. But you have more places as a, a storyteller to to tell stories. So that makes it better for all underserved and underrepresented communities. So you mentioned that through the production company, you guys were able to give Bob his first opportunities to direct, and Bronx Tale continues to live on in other forms all these years later. But you also just mentioned female directors, and I can't help but wonder, have you ever been tempted to go to that side of things and and direct? I'm not interested in the cinema of Jane Rosenthal. (laughs) So um, there was probably only one time that I thought I could do a good job, but um, I think I'm way too ADD to just focus <laughs> on something. Although it could be a really, it could be relaxing. Yeah. I mean, in the ways that you're just focused on just one thing and right. have to shut the rest of the world out. I'm, I admire um, and in awe of uh, of directors and writers who can just who do 
just shut the rest of the world out and go and and do and create some extraordinary work. Well, I want to ask you if you can just to give one kind of example of the ups and downs of being a producer. I want to bring up a period of maybe three years of releases and ask you to just take us through your what was going on in your head through this. So 1997, Out Comes Wag the Dog, a movie you guys produced. Great movie, still referenced uh, this month, in fact, with uh, today. today even with um, our, our wonderful president, <laughs> sarcastically uh, said. So that comes out in 97. 99, analyze this, is the sort of the start of Bob's comedy reinvention and a whole franchise. And then 2000, you've talked about this before as, I guess, a, a life lesson, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, which was not successful in by most traditional metrics. And then right after that, though, the rebound of a huge success with Meet the Parents, which launched another franchise and really, again, reinforced that Bob can do comedy tremendously. So that's within a period of, again, like three, four years, a lot of ups and downs. I think it illustrates how many projects you have in the air at one point. Can you just maybe reflect on, on that for a minute Any when you think back to that time? And I had two babies. And two babies. And I, right and I had two babies. Uh, <laughs> you never know what it is being called in to have a rewrite meeting on the eve of when you're starting to shoot and you've had a baby 10 days ago oh, and God. your milk is coming in. <laughs> and you're like, okay. And it's not like every, ta- like every place they have today are nursing stations. I'm right. so envious when I see those, although I'm certainly not envious. So anyway, never mind. <laughs> um, so you learn much more from your failures than you do from your successes. I really believed in Rocky and Bullwinkle and what that, what that could have been. Um, it was, you know, nobody hits a home run all the time. You've, you've singles, you have ground balls, and um, sometimes you just completely strike out. But that's what trusting your instinct is. And, you know, it was from a CG standpoint, we were doing 2.5D, and the combination of what we were doing with live action and animation was actually groundbreaking at the time. But it didn't work. You know, you don't lose. You don't lose sleep. But over you don't it. I didn't stay lose, down. You, you don't stay down. You don't stay. You, you don't stay down. Um, I remember more of the detail of that than I remember <laughs> some of the other stuff because it was, it because it became so. It became so personal. Um, it's it, success has so many. You know, so many fathers yes. and <laughs> and failure has but one. Okay, <laughs> all of a sudden it was me, a hundred percent. So you know, I take that. You know, I. I'll, I'll take that. There haven't uh, been but, too many, uh, so. Uh, but it was, um, you know, working on Meet the Parents and uh, with Jay Roach and Ben Stiller and John Hamburg and uh, that whole team became a real a, a real family and um, you know still close to to all those guys and Blythe Danner and look then the spring of two thousand one. Mm-hmm. I was doing About a Boy in London, and I was doing a movie called Showtime with Bob and Eddie Murphy here in L.A., and I was going L.A., New York, London, London, New York, L.A. I had little babies. I was picking up a kid and bringing them and traveling and with the, and just back and forth and back and forth, and I was going to I dropped my daughter off at school um, in second grade. My, 
daughter Juliana, who's now 25, off at school and racing to a staff meeting because I had to leave on September 12th. 2001 to come to LA for a screening of uh, Showtime and that was like get into the office go and 9-11 happened and my car was like my car stopped on a yellow light a block and a half south of the towers on West Street and you know what everything like changed completely I mean I know I sound it was everything changed. It was like, okay, a research screening in L.A., I can't go. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. What does it mean if I show up? Uh, I can't get to London to see another cut of about a boy. Can I get to my kid? Can I get out of here? <laughs> that it changed a lot of people's lives. Um, but, um, you know, from a very insular just talking about me, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. Um, it was deeply affecting, and it was, and I, I went for days about how come I ran out. I ran out, and you had all these firefighters and police and rescue workers running in, and what is that instinct to who runs out and who runs in, and the guilt of that of. Who decides to save that stranger next to you? That how do you, what is that in your life? What happens when you're stuck in those God-foreseen circumstances? And that's when, like right, right after that, we started doing these dinner downtowns. I just, like, how do we do something for our community? How do we do something for the rescue workers, the firefighters, the police, how do we do something for our neighbors so that we know who our neighbors are? And then by t- November 2001, we announced we were doing Tribeca Film Festival. That's amazing. And I think that, you know, just to kind of, if anyone doesn't know this history of, of what you guys did there, it was, you sort of referenced it, but can you explain how quiet and depleted and whatever lower Manhattan and Tribeca was. I mean, your guys' offices, from what I understand, basically looked at Ground Zero. Yeah. Well, we looked at the towers. Um, you didn't look at... Yeah. Um, well, you know, you were breathing... You were breathing black smoke. Nobody... People... There was definitely an uptown-downtown divide. People were afraid to come downtown. You had to show your... There were tanks and, you know military with rifles and helicopters going it was it was a war zone period it was war zone you couldn't get into that into the area uh, for a long time even before the red cross came in you had volunteers that were bringing tube socks and uh, the restaurants uh, uh, drew Nipperant, Morty um, Morty Shapiro from the Tribeca Grill Daniel Boulay uh, there were a number of restaurant workers who went into the area to bring in hot food. You couldn't, no one could get there. And that's in the middle of New York City. Right. You know? um, so it was, uh, well, it was it's, scary. It comes back to what you're saying. You know, you know you're in New York when you've got all this action, taxis and everything. There, That was not happening. So just one follow-up about that. You guys, just to be totally clear for anyone listening, so it's you, your then-husband, and Bob start this film festival. Had any of you 
ever had anything to do. I mean, I know there had been some discussion pre-9-11, maybe one day let's do a film festival or whatever, but now you're doing it. Had, how do you know how to even start to do it, to run a film festival, let alone turn it around in essentially four was it four months you had to get it to go? Days, yeah. Um, well, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> uh, you don't s- quit your day job and start a film festival. And I have said the world didn't need another film festival <laughs> at that time, but Tribeca did. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that we were doing it once. I also thought, because we announced it November 2001, and I thought, okay, if I can prep a movie in three months, I can prep a film festival. (laughs) I didn't think about sponsorships. I didn't think about submissions. I didn't think, I mean, I I didn't think about a lot of things. None of us did. I remember uh, Bob coming in and saying, uh, because we were trying to get Star Wars, and Bob saying, okay, he spoke to Lucas, and if the festival were the following week, we could get Star Wars. And I just said, okay, so we'll change the date of the festival. Nobody's waiting for us. Dating becomes a big thing now that people complain about the date of our festival. And so you guys did end up, you had your own movie about a boy. You had Attack of the Clones, which, I mean, every time a Star Wars movie comes out, that's a huge deal. And it, I mean, here we are. This is going to, the 2020 version is the, going to be the 19th? No, this is our... 19th festival coming up yeah uh, so yeah it's unbelievable yeah um, that's awesome well what i want to obviously close with is the irishman which today is one of many days at this time of year this year when you are being honored for either the irishman or when they see us which is another project that you've produced in fact today i believe is both you're being you're nominated for let's focus on the irishman though i mean this was one where you've said that casino came out in 95 and and basically from that point it's you know there'd been a steady clip up to that point of bob and marty making movies together so all right let's find the next one and it took quite a while to find one then you guys find one with the book I Heard You Paint Houses, that's back in 2007. So can you please connect the dots for how, you know, why this was as as sort of uh, epic a journey as it's been? Well, nobody wanted to make it. Why, so, though? This is De Niro know, and Scorsese and, and Rosenthal? And, and, <laughs> but, no, but it's De Niro and Scorsese. And if De Niro and Scorsese and Pesci yeah. and Pacino with a Steve Zalian script have a brand in this brand conscious world that mm-hmm. we're in and the sequel itis this this was that but people were afraid of it and why what the technology would be would you go and by the way you didn't have a certain type of technology that point. It wasn't until Pablo Hellman was working with Marty on silence and thought that he could have a more intuitive way for the actors to work without uh, balls and, you know, strange objects all around them. For and the could, reverse like, aging, yeah. For the reverse aging. So, look, there were, there were times where you could have gotten it made by, you know, splitting rights and, you know, d- yeah, which we, we, we did and then... That was untangled. You could have done it for a very specific lower budget number. But, you know, by the time we got there, if you're going to do something with Bob and 
and Marty, then it should be their vision and it should be done the way they want it. Um, and I guess we waited for the industry to change and Netflix came along. They had, they were just done Roma a year ago. And um, that impressed uh, you the way they handled that? Without question. You yeah. think about a black and white Spanish speaking movie with no stars. Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe right. they could work with, you know, yeah. they could work with us. And uh, we called, uh, called Ted and met with Ted, and he read it, said, I, I want to do this. So, as people who overcame any reservations you may have had about, Netflix or going a non-traditional distribution model, what would you say to people who today still have sort of their, their, their guard is up when they hear Netflix, whether it's Academy members or whoever, what's, why should they reconsider Netflix? Well, first of all, Netflix did give us um, a, we're still in theaters. Yes. So the fact that you are in theaters and on platform are not mutually exclusive. Our right. audiences want choices just like they want a choice to listen to a podcast yes. versus read, you know, versus reading. It doesn't mean that by not reading a particular magazine or newspaper, they're not going to also listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. So we have choices as audiences. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the key. The the other thing is that as a as a filmmaker as a storyteller you want your you, you want your your film to be seen by the widest possible audience more people will end up seeing Irishman than probably any Scorsese De Niro movie combined that's pretty extraordinary mm -hmm. for people to be able to a, a global audience to be able to see that work that these you know Titans, icons yeah. of cinema in have Ghana, created, they can, or whatever. Right. They can, so yeah. it's um, so that right there yeah. is, um, you know, that right there is is, is a plus uh, for all of us, no matter what community we're from. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't see things in cinema. But by the way, theaters are shrinking. Netflix bought the Paris, mm -hmm. which was just a couple mm -hmm. months ago. But prior to that, we've lost the Ziegfeld. It's yep. a it's a an event space. Yep. Yep. It looks like the Hyatt. By the way, the Hyatt can look very nice. But you're <laughs> looking Plaza. at you, it's yeah. all they're gone, mm -hmm. and the seats are so you're in you're in and you're they're more interested in hospitality and inter, you know and entertaining in the space versus the quality of the screen. Now that's I'm sure I'm wrong that there is you know there are some places that are for the quality of the screen, but that's not a large number. So the great thing about Netflix is you can have screen quality and distribution in theater, and then you can also watch it on whatever platform you want. And I don't know, my screen at home is, is pretty good. It's <laughs> pretty good. So last question. Um, this is an interesting moment in a lot of ways. Obviously, Irishman's gone over tremendously, and I've never seen Bob do as much to sort of celebrate and support a movie as he's done here. He's just been amazing everywhere. He's obviously very proud of it. I would think, I'm sure you are as well. At the same time, things are kind of evolving with Tribeca. I know you guys have just had a, a new partner come along in James Murdoch. I guess I just wonder, give us your outlook here at the beginning of 2020 about where all these many facets of your life stand and how you feel about it. 
I'm exhilarated. First of all, I feel like I'm in a state of relief and disbelief that we, one, got the Irishman made. It is the vision that Marty had always had and that it is, um, it has been embraced by by people and to have at this point in, in their lives and, you know, and listening to what we talked about earlier, to be able to be part of that and to have produced this uh, with Emma has been a career highlight. If I don't do another movie, this is like, I'm, you know, this is pretty extraordinary. Mm. Um, that's not to say that. Um, <laughs> You're not quitting I'm anytime not quitting. soon. No, I'm not quitting anytime soon. <laughs> and in terms of uh, Tribeca Enterprises and our new partnership with James and uh, Attention Capital, Joe Marchese, it's it's ex- it's exhilarating because we're allowing us to really grow the festival the way we need to grow it. It's difficult to do a festival in the middle of New York City. You know, we have been doing it for a while, but uh, as the industry is changing and the way you tell stories and how you tell stories and the new creators that are coming into, that, that are, are in the world and to be able to curate and showcase those stories, whether they're amazing, great game creators or it's the work that we do in immersive storytelling or it's what's being done online with short storytelling. It's just an, ex- it's just an exciting time to be able to curate and showcase that work and how we'll expand it from here is uh it's just exciting times for us awesome well thank you congratulations and uh, thank you absolutely thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on itunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.